Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, as we zoom toward uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, there's so much that we have to keep in mind. And, and you know, obviously, all of these things are for all year long and, and, and forever. Um, there's a couple of things in, in this week's Parsha that I think are just uh, totally uh, life, life essentials. And again, when we talk about when we talk about a Torah path, I think that I think that the um, there's a sort of a temptation to sort of think of it in terms of you know um, actions. We we do this, we don't do that, and everything like that. But but the attitude and our sort of like our mental state, our our emotional state, is 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 a very giant part of of all of this. And um, I want to go into that idea, just like, just the more, I, I like this word, it's sort of fancy, the more psycho-spiritual sort of like aspects of it all, of, of essentially getting through life, and not just getting through life, but really making the most of life. So, so with that in mind, uh, this, there, there are two sections in the Torah that have uh, what are called uh, klalas, which are translated as, as curses, maybe Consequences is probably a, a, a better word for it, um, but 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 translations aside, uh, the one of them, one of the groups of them, is in this week's parsha, and the the sages um, talk about it in the in the Talmud that they sort of arrange the calendar so that it always should be two weeks before Rosh Hashanah. They don't want it to be the the, the week before Rosh Hashanah because then you're sort of like all freaked out heading into Rosh Hashanah where where one's year is sort of like laid out, and, and so it's too scary. So they do it the week before. So that way you have a chance to get over it and, and, and everything like that. But, but more, more than that, on a much deeper level, they say that the idea is that you want to clear the slate so that everyone enters in with a clean slate. That in other words, whatever is sort of like um, still kind of like hanging for a person, it should have landed, and now we get it out of the way for the new year. So that's the idea of them happening before Rosh Hashanah. Now, at the end of th- that section of, of Klalas, um, there's, a, there's a verse that, that, that I want to zero in on. And this is really one of the, one of the key verses in the whole Torah. And, and it gets us back to what I wanted to discuss, which is a person's mental state, an emotional state. So it says over here, See, let me just find it. It's um, it's a chapter. It's a Devarim, Deuteronomy twenty-eight, uh, forty-seven. So, so there's a very sort of like um, perhaps counterintuitive or surprising conclusion to the to this list of curses, right, or clouds, whatever it is. So I'm going to read you verse forty-seven. Because you did not serve Hashem your God amid gladness and goodness of heart when everything was abundant. That's why these things happened. That's what it says. Because basically we weren't besimcha. We weren't in a, in a place of joy when we had reason to be in a state of joy. So you should know that Rebbe Nachman of Breslov like, places tremendous importance on this particular verse and it helped to shape his philosophy and the whole approach, the whole derech of Breslov Hasidus that it's based on joy. So, so let's, let's get into, I, I heard a very, like, I think, exciting interpretation and explanation of what that verse means. 
And let me just just sort of like lay it out. So, so according to this understanding, and I, I'm sorry, I forgot in whose name it was, but but he says he explains it like this: that that all the problems happen because we weren't in a place of simcha or joy. But but listen very carefully because. This analysis, I think, is really beautiful. He's not saying, oh, you're not in a state of joy? Here comes the punishment. <laughs> you were supposed to be happy. You weren't happy. Here comes all the punishment. Not that. Not that. Not that. Which is how it can read. Not that. Okay? What is it? When a person isn't in a state of joy, then they look for other places for their joy. Places that maybe are not so permissible or not so healthy for the person. And then once they get into those activities, then that's when the negative consequences start rolling toward them. So this is a very exciting expansion of Torah understanding, which is the concept of joy as a protective force. Joy as shmira. See, my, my father, Oliver Shalom, used to do, uh, he was a psychologist and he would do marriage counseling and things like that. And, you know, sometimes couples have a wandering eye, this type of thing. And he would tell me uh, that an example that he used to give in therapy is the following, which is that um, if you have like a nice full dinner at a restaurant and you walk out of the restaurant, are you looking to another restaurant immediately. What now? What now? What restaurant am I going to go to now that I've just finished a great dinner? You you don't, because you are in a place of satisfaction. So that's that's the that's the idea that 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 joy brings you to this place of satisfaction, and when you have that joy, you're not looking to other things in order to fill in what you feel is missing from your life. So, so there's something, there's sort of a, uh, a support for this that I, I heard many years ago, but I want to connect it to this, which is that what does the cheta egel, meaning the sin of the golden calf, and the maraglam, the sin of the spies, what's one thing that those two things have in common? And the answer is, in neither case did women participate. Women didn't participate in either. And... They, I, I read a commentary one time, which was, why, why is it that women didn't participate? So this, this, this sort of person was theorizing on this. And they said, because women, after the crossing of the Red Sea, women broke out in song and dance. Mm. Nice. And you don't really see men dancing anywhere, as far as I know, in the Chumash. Like you see people dancing around the golden calf, and we'll get to that in a second, but you don't see that, and then the men were so happy they broke out and they started dancing. You don't see that. In fact, the, the Gomorrah talks about, uh, I believe it's King Chizkiyahu, but one of the kings of Israel, and, and they say that, that in certain generations, the leader of the generation was worthy of being Mashiach, but the people were not worthy of receiving Mashiach. Or the people were worthy of being receiving Mashiach, but the king was not on the level of worthy of being Mashiach. Okay? 
And they say in that generation, after this great miracle, miraculous military victory that the Jews had, that the Jews were worthy at that time, but the king was not worthy, and therefore Mashiach didn't come. And why didn't Mashiach come at that moment? Because the king, after this miracle happened for the entire Jewish people and we were saved, didn't break out in song. <laughs> we were one song away from Mashiach. Literally, literally. So again, you find that this idea of joy, joy brings you, if you just think of it almost on a physics level, that there's this quantum jump that happens when you're in a place of joy. And song brings you to that place. And that's why joy is so emphasized in, in Hasidus. You know, I'll tell you something. Hasidus and Kabbalah, are basically, there's a big overlap. Rabbi Ari Kaplan says that Kabbalah brings human beings up to God. Hasidus brings God down to man. Okay? So the Ari, like maybe the greatest Kabbalist ever, says that all of his Torah insights only came because he was in a state of simcha. And that, that, that's, that's a very powerful recommendation to the mind expansiveness that comes through joy. Right? So that's, that's an amazing thing. Now, now again, the women, after they, they, they weren't just in a place of joy after the splitting of the Red Sea, they anticipated joy, <laughs> which is a whole nother level. Because everyone asks, it says that they broke out with their um, tambourines and everything like that. And everyone asks, where did they get tambourines? They just left Egypt. And, and you know, like it's a good question. And the answer is, they brought the tambourines with them because they were anticipating miracles and salvations. So they, they were, that's why they did that. So again, this, this idea of joy as protection from sin. Because when you're in this place, you're not looking for other things to fill in that gap. Which means that a person has to find, if they want to use this practically, they have to have, you'll, you'll <laughs> excuse the way I'm phrasing this, but you'll hopefully get the point. A person has to find a way to have fun with God. You have to find a way to have fun with God. And there are different ways to do it. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Happy Minion is such an important place. Because people sing, they dance, they, they go like a little bit nutty. You know what I mean? Like everyone's free to kind of like express themselves. But it's a Torah environment at the same time, which is unusual that you see those two things overlap. And, and it's great. It's great. You, 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 you're able to channel that aspect of yourself in a really healthy way. So with that in mind, I want to invite everyone for Roshan and Yom Kippur, Sukkot. This is people fly in from all over to be at the Happy Minion for those days. You know, it's, it's really, it's a, it's, a, it's a good place to be. We've got like the best Chazen, you know, we're biased, but you know, we have Yehuda Solomon, yeah. the head of the Moshav band, and grew up on the Moshav with Reb Shlomo, you know, sat on his lap while he learned Nagunim from Reb Shlomo, and so, you know, you really have one of the great, uh, one of the great Chazanim in, in the world who will be at the Happy Minion. So, anyway, um, but let, let, let's go further. Let's go further, because one thing to say is to say these things, it's it's deeper than this. I, I want to show you how, how much the Torah prizes this, this idea, okay? So, the beginning of this week's Parsha, 
It's talking about um, the, the mitzvah to bring your first fruits to the base of Migdash. And you take your, the first fruits and you put them in a basket and you bring them to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so all of these parshas leading up to Rosh Hashanah, all of the Rebbe say all of these parshas are about Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so, so what are we being instructed to do? We're being instructed to look over our year, think about all the good things that you did, that's your fruit, put it in a basket, and take it to the Beis Amigdash. Now remember, the Jikover Rebbe says, Beis Amigdash is Gematria Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> that's a, one, of, one of the all-time greatest Gematrias. So take your fruit, take, remember the good things that you did, put it in a basket, and take it to Rosh Hashanah. Right? Because you have to be in that positive place. You have to be in that positive place. Now, what's interesting about the way the Torah phrases this is that it says, which means, and you should take your fruits. Now, the Nachom Kedumen points out that, really, that's strange phraseology. Seemingly, you're giving your fruits. So why is it saying, Take your fruits. So, so he he says a very beautiful thing, and we're gonna go, we're gonna like lean into this teaching. So, so uh, as Reb Shlomo would say, open your hearts. You know, <laughs> listen to this amazing thing. He wants to explain this idea that we're taking, even though it seems like we're giving. He wants he points to um, a Gomorrah kedushin about how a man and a woman get married according to Jewish law. So normally speaking. The man has to give something to the woman of value, like silver, right, money, something some like a tangible asset he has to give to the woman. And that, according to Jewish law, transacts this union that takes place. Okay? Now, there is an exception where a woman can give to the man, and that that will be a, a halachic transaction of marriage. What is that instance where a woman can give to a man, and then that's a a kosher wedding. It's when the man is, quote-unquote, prestigious or important in her eyes. If the man is prestigious or important in her eyes, then she can give to the man. Why? So the Gomorrah explains the logic of this. Because she receives something in return. She receives the satisfaction that this important man has accepted my gift. Now, let me explain it, just just to make it clear. Imagine I'm a painter, and I do this painting, and I donate it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right? Maybe the, or the Louvre, right? Like, to, like, one of the top museums in the entire world. And they take my painting, and they hang it on one of their walls. Now... Do you know? Yeah, I gave them the painting. Do you know how good I feel? I, I'm like, my painting's in the Louvre. Like, I, okay, yeah, I gave you a painting. But you know what I got out of it? I'm now one of the top artists in the world. So there's an idea where a person gives, but what they receive is tremendous from the fact that their gift was accepted. Okay? So that's what the Gomorrah is talking about in this instance. If there's a man who's like a, a, like a real, you know, a real hush of, you know, an important person in the woman's eyes, and she gives this gift, which is 
intended to solidify a marriage, and the man wants that because he wants her, she feels good that she's wanted by someone who's like such a such an important person in her eyes. Right? So she has received something. Alright, now, let's go deeper with this. Okay, now this is me talking, but I think this is what maybe the Gomorrah is saying on, on another level. That attitude, that feeling of satisfaction that, the, that, that she receives at that moment is, an, is a tangible asset which is equal to silver and money. Because those are the other things that a marriage can be transacted through. In other words, here's, what I'm trying to, here's the point I'm trying to make. Don't think a positive attitude, hey, cheer up, <laughs> you know, have a positive attitude. You know, like it's like a Band-Aid on your brain, right? Come on! You can do it! This is saying it's so much more than that. That a positive attitude is like silver or money. It's, act- it's, a, it's, a, it's an actual asset. It's a hardcore asset that you have, that you possess. It's not this fleeting kind of thing. So... With this in mind, I think we, we can better understand what it says in Perkei Avos, that who is the rich person? Someone who is Sameach Bechelko, someone who is Sameach, that's Simcha, that's happiness, the way we started, someone who is happy with their lot. Again, now we're not talking because they don't, they don't list like who is rich. They don't list any dollar amounts. They tell you it's this attitude. But again, now we have a better appreciation of what an attitude is. An attitude isn't just cheer up. An attitude is, this is the way you're seeing the world. This is what you're experiencing. This is, a, this is an asset. This is tangible, like silver or money, it's tangible. So it says, someone who is happy with their lot. So that means that you can have someone who's quote-unquote by Western standards rich, but they are unsatisfied because they want a bigger house and they want the newer car and they want the more trophy wife, whatever it is. So even though, you know, according to the IRS, maybe they're rich, really they're poor because they're just lacking. You know, they've got a big basket filled with stuff, but there's a giant hole on the bottom and it's just, it's just all pouring out the bottom. Or you can have someone who maybe, according to the IRS, is not rich, right? But they're blowing their mind over like all of creation, right? It's like, what? There's mice. Why did God make mice? And they like cheese of all the things for mice to like, you know? You know, just, I mean, just everything is amazing. Everything is amazing. Remember, we always go back to the Ramban. The Ramban, this is over a thousand years ago, says, Anyone who says that every single thing in the world isn't a miracle, if you don't acknowledge that every single thing in life, every single thing in life is a miracle, you have no portion in the Torah of Moshe. That's the Ramban, right? This is like, what, 600 years before the Hasidic movement. So, the Torah orientation for life is that your mind is constantly being blown, which is a place of mind expansion, which is the ground that's most fertile for joy. 
Because when your mind is being blown, you know what you're not thinking of? You're not thinking about your own problems. You're not thinking about your own pettiness. Right? We're just in a place of gratitude. We're just outwardly focused. Remember, that's the key to be outwardly focused, if we can be, you know? See, that's, that's we talked about it in, in, in a talk earlier. That's the, the critical thing that shifted when we ate from the tree of knowledge. Our point of view and our perspective went from looking out to looking in, in a, in a more um, self-conscious, negative way. Right? It doesn't mean that it's not healthy for a person to be introspective. We want to be introspective also. We want that also. But not in a way where it's just sort of like, you know, like, like a cat licking its fur constantly. <laughs> right? So, okay, good. So, so, so let's go further. Um, a lot of people have this question, which is if you go through the Parsha and you look at the number of blessings, because there are blessings here also, and then you look at the, the klalas, there's so many more klalas than, than blessings. And it seems to be like really uncomfortably out of whack. As, as someone in, in, in shul said to me, at least have them equal, <laughs> right? Like, like they're so weighted toward the klalas, like what is going on? And I saw something from the Chidusha Rim. That, that, that I thought was very special and sort of answered this, then very much answered this question, which is, there's a section um, that says, these shall stand to bless the people on Mount Gerizim that you have crossed the Jordan, and it lists the tribes who are going to be in charge of the blessings, but it doesn't say what the blessings are. And then it says, and these shall stand for the curse on Mount uh, Abel, and then it starts to enumerate the curses. So how can it be that, 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 that no blessings are mentioned in that section and there's a list of curses? So listen to what the Chidush Arim explains. Because there's a limit to the number of curses, that's why they're listed, and the blessings are not enumerated because there is no limit to the amount of blessing that God wants to give you. So you don't even, it's not even, you know, have you ever noticed, like, the Chachamim are very, very serious about that. Like the introduction to, um, to, to our prayer of, of, of Shmona Esrei, we say, um, regarding God, we say that, uh, that, that God is great, mighty, and awesome. And that's it. Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, Ha'el, Ha'gadol, Ha'gibor, Vahanara. Because if we wanted to continue to list, we would never, ever, ever end. And at a certain point, as, as they say, more is less. So, so we're just very, you know, that, that, that's, that's the most we can say. And the fact that we can even say that, I heard from Reb Shlomo, I believe in the name of the original Rebbe, that the fact that we can even call God good is God's kindness to us. And the example Reb Shlomo gave was, imagine going up to 
like Rothschild or Rockefeller and saying, you're so rich, you've got a hundred dollars. Like, it's almost an insult. It's almost an insult. Because it's so beyond that. God's goodness is so beyond our capacity to understand that if we try to give what, what has the illusion of an authoritative, comprehensive list, we're diminishing. Even to the point, says the Rebbe, of even calling him good. He allows us to do that just as a, as a, as a kindness to us. Amazing, amazing thing. Just, you know, Reb Shlomo used to say all the time, why are you making God so small? Why are you making God small? And I think that's part of the work of Rosh Hashanah. Part of the work of Rosh Hashanah is this idea of making God king is just really allowing ourselves to just expand our consciousness and just to make just an ever larger vessel of our, of our minds, basically, to hold more and more light. Okay. Now for some questions and answers. Kind of comments, last question. Back to the, yeah. the beginning of your talk, talking about yeah. simcha, generating simcha, yeah. happiness, and kind of like only joking around with Hashem. And it was really, uh, I love hearing you say that, you know, because I think that, A, some people take their religious practice so seriously that they feel like laughter isn't holy, or laughter isn't part of the, yeah. the game plan. And actually, I think it's quite the opposite. Yeah. And like, uh, it's so powerful, this idea, when you're in Simcha, you actually don't have craving for things that might, you might have. Like, when, right. you're, when, you, when you drop down, that's when the craving arises. Like, I, I'm a little uncomfortable, I'm going to do this and that, but when right. you're in Simcha, it's so It's powerful. like, you know, there's a term that I learned late in life, but it's such a good one. It's called self-medicating. Right? So a lot of times people run to different things. It's a way of self-medicating because they, they, feel, they feel a pain. They feel yeah. a pain. But the idea is that we're, you're never alone. You're never alone. God is always there. And God loves you more than anyone ever could. So, but but that, that, that understanding has to be developed. It has to be nourished. And, you know, Rabbi Nachman talks about the, um, the idea that when he was younger, he would go into shul, and I guess he was alone in shul when he would do this, and he, before he would give tzedakah, he would say a series of prayers. And then he would put the, the money that he had in the pushka, in the tzedakah box, and then he would start to walk out, and then he would, quote-unquote, suddenly remember, oh, I have some more money. And then he would go back. And he was doing this like a game. But uh, because he knew God knew that he had more money. And then he would say the prayers that he would say before he would give tzedakah. He would say them all over again. And then he would give some more money. And then he would start to walk out and he'd go, I forgot I have some more money. So there's, I mean, this is like how a holy, like one of our holiest people plays games with God. This is, he's making almost a game out of the avoda. And, and, but here you see there's a spirit of almost mischievousness and fun that can be still very appropriate in terms of one's relationship, which, which, is, which, is, which is good. So we're the flaco very often. <laughs> flaco in Argentina means like, dude, everyone calls me the flaco. Hey, flaco, what's up? So I flaco, and obviously I respect him so much, but it's like this great way... Especially yeah. with something bad, like, you know, if I knock something over and then a glass shatters, I'm like, I shattered a flaco. Really? <laughs> really? And it's like, I get, like, also, like, 
little bit jab Hashem, like you're really gonna, you know, and it's like, it, 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 instead of getting angry and yeah. cursing, like I, 10 years ago, I used to, if I used to break a glass, I'd yell at the glass, yell at myself, whatever, yeah. and then, and now it's just like, I kind of, I laugh, and I can make, you know, Hashem, why are you, why are you giving me a hard time, you know, right. it becomes this kind of like fun, Yes. Uh, thing it's very it's very powerful it's interesting you know? yeah. it's, it's hard sometimes it still gets harder if you bang if you bang if I hurt yeah. myself you know yeah. then it's even harder to thank you Hashem gosh why thank you it hurts you know but yeah. you know you're, you're reminding me of something one, one of the sort of like greatest spiritual moments I ever had was I I it was Purim and uh, we were benching and I was at some suda I don't remember where and then they started extending the benching and singing, and I think they started even like playing musical instruments and dancing during the benching. And I was actually still in the mourning period for my mother, where I guess you don't dance so much, you know? But somehow I was kind of, and I'm not saying that's the reason why this happened, but I'm just as, as, just as a frame of reference. Anyway, I sort of got caught up in the spirit of it, and I was jumping and spinning, and my foot, landed on a speaker and so and my ankle twisted and I fell down and like immediately like my ankle swelled to like the size of a grapefruit you know and I remember just lying on my back just saying thank you God uh, only you knew that I needed a broken ankle now wow. like in a million years I never would have thought right now I'm I just want to comment that yeah. Powerful, the idea that it's so powerful to understand that, that joy, how you explained it, is, is like a protection. It's, it's like yeah. much, much, it's, it's, it's on a, a much um, more, joy is on a much more serious level yeah. <laughs> that we realize. Yeah. It's like you know, you know. There's this great quote that I actually heard from Rabbi Green from Oscar Wilde, right? You don't hear many rabbis quoting Oscar Wilde, <laughs> so, <laughs> so. So Oscar Wilde said, life is too important to be taken seriously. <laughs> In other words, if you want to actually maximize your productivity, you have to be a little bit loose and silly and fun, right? But not in order to slack off, in order to be in an optimal state of productivity, right? So, so that's, it's, uh, that, that's in the spirit of what you're saying. That it can it can actually guard us and protect us, because also when we're more productive, we feel better about ourselves, and then that allows us to do more as well. Can you expand more about the concept of singing and what kind of effect it has, and is there a difference between singing a song versus a nigla? Um, I'm sure there is. I, I don't know the, the the difference between the two. I once heard a nice definition of a nigan though, which is. Um, that a nigan has no beginning and no end. Because most nigunim, they, they, they just... But I'll tell you one of the, my favorite teachings about songs from the Moshe Tzarebi. So, so there's a concept that the, the heichel, which means palace, and it's used in sort of a spiritual sense too, like in sort of like trying to... Um, the cart- this might be a nice name for a book, the cartography of heaven, right? Like... Cartography is map making. So in terms of like the, the map making of the spiritual dimensions, the, we, we talk about heichels, palaces, right? These are regions in, in Shemayim. And one of the regions is a place um, 
called uh, uh, Niguna, which means song. And they say it's right next to the palace of Chuva, of return. Okay, because when a person sings, their soul opens up and they're very close to Chuva. But the Moshe Tzarebi says, I say the palace of song is the palace of return. That they're not right next to each other, they're one and the same. That as a person is singing, they're actually in that place of return at that moment. And I know for myself, like that song, Nina, I don't know, did you listen to that song? Oh, yeah, beautiful. Did it do it for you? I'm telling you, everyone's got to listen to Shlomo Katz's new song. It's it's off the charts. I mean, maybe I've listened to it maybe 50 times. I'm not joking. I listen to it over and over again. This is like such a gift for Elo. In general, it's a gift. But and he's singing it with Yosef Karduner and and, and 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 his brother Eitan Katz and Chaim David. And there's a violin. Sometimes violin for me is like very screechy. And this is like some of the most beautiful violin I've ever heard. What's it called? You know what? It's. Uh, Yeah, I can, I can, I can tell you the name of it. It's in, it's in Hebrew. Um, I was just listening to it in the car on the way here. It's called Meshorer uh, Hachuva. Okay, so I'm going to spell that for you. M E S H O R E R. New word. Ha H A Chuva. T S H U V A H. But can I tell you something? Listen to it. If you're going to listen to it at all, make a deal with yourself. You're going to listen to it two or three times in a row. Because I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, I like it. This is such a weird reaction I had to the song. I said, I like it, but I see that I'm going to love it. <laughs> and then, I even this was even weirder. I heard the moment in the song where I said, I'm not crying. I'm not even that moved. But I know right here I'm going to start crying. <laughs> and sure enough, that happened. It was, it was very, I've never had that reaction to a song before. Anyway, Where is it? it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube, yeah. Um, thank you for speaking about all this. It's so funny. Um, I've been having, I, I've been thinking a lot about last week when you talked about the hardest thing that a man can go through is is finding the balance between having your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground. Yes. And I've found that like both ways when I like stray and I'm too grounded, I feel depressed. And when I'm too in the clouds, not here, not present, I'm depressed. So like it is, it has been something really hard for me to find that balance. Yeah. But I, I, I really, I like the concept of joy as a currency because that's gotten me out of it. Yes. And um, I just wanted to give this like a side of this past week. I've always been very connected to music and that's, I felt kind of frivolous like I was trying to meditate and ground myself and then I found this playlist on Spotify, 100 Most Uplifting Songs Ever. Oh wow, So Great. I started listening to it every morning and it helped me so much. Yeah. Helping me, and this is like totally making sense. Why? Because it's like I get that like shot of joy, yes, and it literally is like making me richer, yes, in my life, and yes. helping like 
put things into focus. Yes. Um, but I wanted to, to ask if you could expand more on like the difference between the like, we're so happy and like you kind of know that it's a band-aid versus how you can really put into effect um, meaningful joy of like yeah. satisfaction and like maybe examples of like, I don't know, yeah, absolutely. You know what, I'm just going to... So in terms of sort of like... First of all, just to react to what you're saying about about the music helping you, um, music is, is, is healing. It's actually healing. And remember, in the Beis Amigdash, in the Holy Temple, when we brought our offerings, the Levian were playing like the most far-out music in the world, you know? So that was happening simultaneously. And again, this idea that the, the, the place of music is the place of return, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that's actually, it can't be truer than the fact that inside the Beis HaMikdash, as you were bringing offerings, you were hearing music that was just like lifting your soul to the highest heights. Um, so, also, just because I just love this teaching to death, um, it, says, it says that God spoke the world into creation. Brook Shemar, right? God spoke and the world was created, it says in Pirkei Avos. But Reb Shlomo said God sang the world into creation. And I always wondered, what's the source for that? And then I ran across Rabbi Trugman wrote in his book on music from the Tikkun Zohar that the word Breshis, if you rearrange the letters of the word Breshis, it spells Shiras Olive Bays. So the word creation itself is the song of the Olive Bays. So I think what happens, my own, my own understanding of this, is that, that there is like all the osios, all the letters are like in this dynamic state in creation. And it's like they're, they're singing, so to speak. They're making song. Like the fabric of creation itself is actually made out of song. And when you're singing or when you're in this place of return, you are actually in harmony with this dynamic force of creation. And your soul is a dynamic force. Your soul doesn't want to be standing still. Human beings are here to grow and they're to, to, to elevate and everything like that. Remember, you know, someone said to me the other day, we're born whole and then we break ourselves and then we become whole again. And you know what? It was like a business conversation. I didn't want to like disagree with them. <laughs> so it's like, all right, brother, you know, for now that's good, you know. You know, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that we're born pretty broken, is the truth. <laughs> I don't think we're born perfect and then we break. I think we're born with a lot of work to do. And, and so from the very outset, from the very outset, we have to repair. Because remember, we believe in reincarnation. We believe in past lives, you know, and, and also it's like, like Reb Shlomo said, this world is a world of fixing. This world, he, he, he said this. I heard it with my own ears. This world is a giant hospital clinic. Everyone is here to fix something, right? So, so, so music is very much part and parcel of, of all of that, right? Now, in terms of practically applying this idea of joy, it's the secret really is gratitude. See, because like... You know, it's kind of funny, like, let's say you get a present, right? And you didn't expect it, or you couldn't imagine someone like, I remember, like, 
and whatever. You get a present and it's like, I don't know how many times, like, I don't know how many times you ever experienced this or even if you ever experienced it. But have you ever gotten a present that you actually liked? <laughs> and you open it up and it's like, yeah, yes. Like it's totally a surprise and it's like, how did they know or whatever it is or this is so great. It's such a good feeling. But I think part of the reason why that's such a good feeling is that at that point you are also actually in a state of gratitude. And that's part of what feels so good is that it's not just that you're receiving at that moment, but you're also receiving and giving at the same time, right? Because you're so grateful to that person who did this wonderful thing for you, right? So, so gratitude actually feels good. It's not sort of like, you know, your mother saying, did you write your thank you note for your bat mitzvah check, right? <laughs> like, and then you're like plagued, like the last thing that you want to do is write a thank you note. And it's sort of like, so we get from an early stage in our life that gratitude is punishment, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's really, it's horrible actually. It's like, it's horrible, but it's in every family. It's in every family. And, and, and it, what's, what's, what's worse is it's in every good family because it's only in a good family that the parent is trying to teach you basic manners, right? <laughs> so it's a real irony there. It's an irony. So, so it gives gratitude a bad name. <laughs> so, so, but gratitude actually feels great. It feels great, right? And I know that this is a tool that, that I've used if I ever start to get depressed or whatever it is, or just feel low, is, and it's very hard to remember to do this, by the way, because when you're starting to feel low and you're starting to sink into a black hole, this is the last thought you will think of. But if you can think of this thought before you plummet, it will be a lifeline, which is to start thanking God at that moment and to start thanking him for everything, whatever it is. Thank you, God, for I've got clothes on my back. Thank you, God, for my, I, my, my, my toes work. Thank you, God, for the fact that there's no earthquake going on. Thank you, God, for the fact that you know, there are places where bombs are going off right now. There are no bombs going off right now. You know, so, and then as you thank God more, you'll think of more and more ideas. Like at first it's slow going, like really, what do I have to thank God for, you know? But then when you start, you realize that you actually have laundry lists to thank God for. And that, that actually lifts you out, right? And, and what's lifting you out is you are basically you're basically turning the key and, and just like flooring it on gratitude. And that's like somehow, I don't know, I'm sure there's some brain chemistry. Someone, if they haven't done it yet, they should like measure your brain, like do a CAT scan on your brain when you're in a state of gratitude and you're not. Have they? I'm sure they, they, they thought of that. Yeah. They, use, they have or they have they not? They have, yeah. and they use that as a way to get people to donate to... Um, different causes, so yeah. show, like, see how good this makes you feel, yes. and that's why you should, yes. so there were incentives yeah. to doing those But it, you talk about self-medicating. Yeah. This is really self-medicating in, in, in a very big way. But again, you have to remember to do it in time. Yeah. This morning, yeah. I was dying, yeah. Yeah. There's something that I'm, that I'm upset about that I want Hashem to do for me. Yeah. But I decided at that moment to thank him 
and did exactly what you said. So I started thinking and thinking and thinking, and it like started shrinking this thing down. Like, not shrinking it, but it was almost like, really? Do you want to go to that? Because look at all this, and it's like, suddenly it didn't feel as like, I mean, it is an issue, and I want it, but the fact that I was focusing on so much Yeah, good, you got more perspective. I got more perspective. Well, okay, so let me just jump in. So, because this is going to sound like so simple, you might just hear it or go one in, in one ear and out the other, but please just think about this for a moment. A person has a choice every single day, every single moment of every single day, to see life through the lens of what they don't have or to see life through the lens of what they do have. And I'm telling you, that is one of the absolute secrets of happiness, of life. Do you want to see life through the lens of what you don't have or do you want to see life through the lens of what you do have? And that can make all the difference of whether or not you, you live in a state of happiness or not. And, and, and seeing life through this state of what you do have is part and parcel of being and staying in an active state of gratitude and finding things to thank God for. You know, one of the great role models in my life, and I think in, in, in Los Angeles, maybe in the world today, is Ben Sion. If you, if you know Ben Sion, Ben Sion is like, he's this like, this appreciation machine. It's, it's unbelievable to be around him. He is just, and, and, and the secret for what he's doing, just so that you understand what he's doing, you know, is he is looking for things to be grateful for. That, that's, that's the difference. If you want to turn pro, so to speak, in terms of really mastering this thing, it's actively looking for things to be thankful for, right? And, and when you walk down the street, you know, wow, that sign is so old. <laughs> it's like, that's the worst sign in the world. Isn't it great that that used to be like a good sign? Like, like I'm so happy to be able to see what used to be a good sign from like the 1950s. And there it is on the store. Very few of those around. I mean, you can, <laughs> if, you, if you use your imagination, you can actually appreciate almost anything. Almost anything, really. 